thank you very much, and, 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 and thank you, Liz, for, for, for inviting me, and it's, it, it's great to be back in Oxford. Um, so let me dive straight into my, to my issues, which are really that the, the, the Russian invasion of Ukraine has changed the world in many ways, very few of them for the better. It has some massive secondary impacts unfolding around the world, many of which we are only just beginning to get our, 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 our arms around. We haven't yet fully grasped what they mean. But it's also intensified a whole lot of things which uh, were already there, but perhaps not quite as, 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 as apparent as in focus as they might be. And what I'm going to focus on is, is, is the, the world food crisis. And, and use that a little bit as a lens into some of the issues um, that, that, that uh, Bennett Freeman has, has, has just raised. And also touch um, very slightly upon some of the, uh, a couple of the issues that, um, that Dr. Rowan Williams raised earlier on in that extraordinary um, introduction. So last June, the UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, cited figures of 276 million people worldwide who he called were food insecure, and he warned of global famine, um, multiple famines, he said, around the world. And his solution was to, that in that particular presentation at the UN, was to stabilize global food markets. The figure of uh, the food insecure is still has risen um, in the last year. It's now about 345 million, according to the UN. Those are people who essentially cannot obtain the, the essential food items for, for, um, for a healthy life. Now, one of the reasons for this, of course, as we all know, was that spike in food prices and new food supply bottlenecks because Russia's invasion of Ukraine disrupted food supplies, not only from Ukraine, but also from southern Russia. And the UN's World Food Programme before the invasion was already facing a 44% increase in costs because food prices were already going up and fuel prices were going up. In response to this, Guterres, with the Turkish president Recep Erdogan, launched what they called the Black Sea Grain Initiative to enable grain ships to sail safely out of Ukrainian harbors. Um, there needed to be not only demining and escorts and, 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 and so on, but as, as, as well as um, uh, agreement from, um, from both sides in the war, and also from southern Russian ports. He called it the Black Sea Grain Initiative. And he said it was the greatest achievement of his time as UN Secretary General. Um, it was an achievement, but it's not going to solve the world food crisis. In fact, it's hardly going to make a dent in it. Um, that situation is a lot more complicated. Let me just make a couple of, of, of definitional points and then, and, and, and then outline what I'm going to say. The first is it's important to distinguish between food insecurity, chronic hunger, inability of people to obtain enough food, and famines, which are those fortunately rare, exceptional episodes of mass starvation, um, which are also episodes invariably of societal collapse. Um, and there are various definitions which we could go into, but I won't uh, tie with those. 
now in the, in the spirit of a procession of, of, of threefold approaches. Um, there are three component parts to famine and food security. Um, and that's how I'm going to frame my, my remarks. The third is, first is food availability, which is what policymakers invariably focus upon. Food availability and, and, and supply through, through logistical bottlenecks. The second is, is what my former professor here, when he was here, Amartya Sen, called, called uh, food entitlement, the ability of people, especially the poor and marginalized, to obtain uh, enough food through the, the fruits of their own labor or, or, or welfare handouts or whatever. And the third is what I call starvation crimes. And the, the core definition here is the war crime of starvation as defined in the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, which is the deprivation of objects indispensable to survival for a civilian population in the course of war. And objects, and this the starvation in this legal sense is not just food, it is objects indispensable to survival, which include water, medical care, shelter, could include electricity, communications, maternal care for children. We don't know exactly how far this concept goes. It has not yet been tested in court. But there is a, it's an, an issue of, of increasing uh, legal uh, academic scholarship in the last few years. Um, one of the interesting things about the, the, the Rome Statute definition is that under pressure from the United States and the, great, uh, and, and the UK as well, the maritime powers, um, Sanctions and, and blockades were not included in the prohibition, um, and that's a point about which we might, which we might return to. Um, so food availability is very quickly dealt with. Scholars of famine have shown time and time over the decades that a food availability decline is neither necessary nor sufficient for famine. But commentators and policymakers have a, a re reflex, a rudimentary error. They shout famine whenever there is a disruption. Yes, you can. it, it creates hardship. A, a food supply disruption, a drought, an interruption to supplies does create hardship, but it is a political decision where and on whom that hardship will fall. And it doesn't have to fall. So the disruption in, in the Black Sea grain supply, some 20% of the world's internationally traded grain, was a major disruption. To, to, to world wheat supply. Whether or not it caused acute food insecurity and famine, that was a political decision. And it's interesting that the best indicator of food um, availability is food prices. And staple food prices around the world have been rising over the last three and a half years. And shortly after the Russian invasion of Ukraine, they hit a level of 171% above the standard from earlier. Um, from about 10, 15 years ago. But it's interesting, and they've since dropped back, the things like the, Russia, uh, like the Black Sea Grain Initiative and the availability of wheat harvests in the Southern Hemisphere pushed um, the level down. But it's notable that even um, with, those, with the current spike, about 130% of what it was 10, 15 years ago, the spike in food prices is still, foodstuffs, foodstuffs, basic foodstuffs today are still cheaper than at almost any time in the 20th century. So this isn't to say that the Ukraine war is irrelevant to the world under question, quite the contrary. 
The links, however, are rather more complicated. So the second part, which I will expand upon a bit more, is food entitlement. The ability of poor people to buy food. And with economic crises rippling around the world already happening with the COVID and the COVID lockdowns and the disruptions in global supply chains and so on due to COVID, unemployment is up, wages are down. And that's a direct product of how economies are organized. And what we are seeing is, is uh, as I'm sure everyone is familiar, the deglobalization and security-driven deglobalization, which is accelerating the problems of food entitlement around the world, accelerating the problems of unemployment, of precarious employment, of, of, of uh, access to sufficient food. So there are many reasons why we might want to pursue deglobalization. It was not an unalloyed good. But to do, to deglobalize in such a way as to build what are selectively war economies is, I think, the worst possible reason. Now, the term war economy was used during the First and Second World Wars to, to denote the, the, the redesign of a market or capitalist economy under central control in order to uh, provide for the enormous economic costs of war. And that invariably in the first part of the 20th century involved major increases in taxation, state direction of essential activities and rationing. Now what we've seen in war economies in Western nations um, over the last 20-something years, with the, um, the global war on terror, the, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan and, and, and elsewhere, is a different kind of war economy. And a war economy in which there are burdens, but the burdens are not allocated by taxation or ration, or indeed central direction of, 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 of how uh, market economies work. The, in fact, taxes are being reduced. Um, in fact, the you know, very opposite of, of, of rational is being pursued. It, and and the, the way in which the, 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 uh, the burden is being allocated is almost entirely through monetary policy, and most recently through, through interest rate, rate hikes. And one of the most striking things about this is that while central banks back in, in, in the aftermath of World War II in the era of Keynesianism were specifically designed not only to control monetary policy, but in order to prevent exactly the sorts of crises that were generated by austerity and mass unemployment in the interwar period, which were recognized as, as a major factor in, in, in World War II. Um, and indeed, the, uh, the Federal Reserve in, in the United States has, in, 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 in its mandate, in its terms of reference, actually includes reference to employment. <laughs> that has been forgotten. It is entirely now managed through, through interest rates and, 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 and through um, bond market and stock market management. And that shifts the burden. It shifts the burden domestically. Um, and whenever we hear a policymaker, an economist, celebrating the fact that wages have been kept down because that keeps down inflation. Anyone who's familiar with basic principles of food economy knows that means poor people don't have enough to eat. And is that to be celebrated? I suspect 
not. And of course, internationally, what that means, when as interest rates go up, all those countries in the, across the global south that have, that have are borrowed in dollars are facing um, increasingly unsustainable debt burdens and, and, and greater austerity. Now, this is happening in the context of, of, of an emerging geostrategic rivalry, which was already in place um, before the Russia-Ukraine the Russia war uh, erupted, before the Russian invasion of Ukraine sort of put the spark to this. And those countries led by China in the global east, um, including many in, in the Middle East, they don't have the exorbitant privilege of having their own currency as the global reserve currency. So they don't have the privilege of being able to manage their, their, their monetary policy in such a way that boom or bust, they get the benefit of, 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 of capital flows in their favor. And so the way the Chinese are doing this is rather different. It's through um, what one might call commodity encumbrance. It is by trying to take control, direct control of primary commodities like oil, like key minerals, like, like farmland and so on. Um, and China has its own debt traps. It has financed massive infrastructural investment around the global south. And countries find themselves getting into debt with China. And then the debt trap closes and they find themselves losing key parts of their, uh, their, their national um, infrastructural endowment and economy to Chinese ownership on very unfavorable terms. And meanwhile, they're still integrated into global supply chains. They continue to dominate the global market in most manufactured goods. And the combination of China's vast industrial capacity and the fact that to, for a developing country, so-called, to get on the lower ranks of development now needs such technological proficiency, unlike, say, 20 or 30 years ago, that it's extraordinarily hard to do so. What we are finding is that more and more countries in the global south find themselves unable to get on this escalator and indeed um, due to um, these other factors including population growth and so on they are on the down escalator and in this during the neoliberal era there was i think a a, a, a well-presented fiction that the global south would get on this escalator that the austerity was a, a, a time-limited suffering a, a, time-limited precarity before some form of gainful employment would spread across the developing world. I think as we see a return to a sort of, a, 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 if you like, a, a rival war economies driven by a spirit of mercantilism, this, the, the burden is being shifted to the global south. And that opportunity, perhaps illusory in the past, but at least no illusion is necessary. At least we now have the candor and the fact that no such illusions are being peddled. Those countries are simply being hung out to dry. So the third element is starvation crimes in the global south. Um, starvation as political or military indecision, as military decision, which was and has been the major cause, not of food insecurity globally, but of famine specifically over the years. We're at an ox peace conference, Oxfam, was founded in the 1940s um, in, as in response to, to a war famine in Greece, um, which was imposed, um, in fact, in, in a collusive manner by the, <coughs> the, the Germans and the Allies. 
um, and war famines historically have been the norm if we look at the pattern of, of, of famines as they have unfolded. Um, the great majority of modern famines are caused by violations, by acts of starvation in the course of war, um, or indeed by military dictatorships um, uh, who, are, who have no interest in the welfare of their people. Um, leaders who pursue policies either deliberately to starve people or recklessly to do so, aware that pillage, um, uh, obstruction of relief, um, uh, and a host of other military actions will reduce people to starvation. We've seen starvation crimes in Ukraine. The war crime of starvation, as I said, is depriving ob civilians of objects indispensable to survival. And we saw that most particularly in Mariupol. And that's sadly indicative of war tactics that we've seen resurgent around the world in many places, Myanmar, Yemen, Nigeria. But the key point I want to make is that the environment of this, this, this global geostrategic rivalry, this competition for political, world political dominance in the context of Ukraine is creating an environment in which there is impunity for starvation crimes. And I want to give two examples. Um, the first is Ethiopia. Starting in, in uh, November of 2020, the Ethiopian government inflicted a campaign of starvation um, with a, using an unparalleled, in my, uh, my experience, array of weapons of war intended to, to, to starve the people of Tigray into submission. There's a very interesting echo in the Ethiopian war with, with what Dr. Williams was talking about in, in Russia. This is a former Orthodox, Christian Orthodox empire with both pretensions to imperial domination over its own um, subordinate nations and nationalities, but also a, a, a deeply held view that it is a victim. And, 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 and that its people, it is perfectly correct for its citizenry to, to volunteer to be martyred in huge numbers in the cause of the greatness, in the survival and indeed the greatness of, of, of the country. But the rent, and, and this led to, to, to a sort of competing victimology on both sides of, 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 of this war. But there's no doubt that the, the principal victims, short, purely in terms of numbers and, and, and the extent of atrocities, were the people of Tigray, whose, who, whose plight was shut off, shut off from the eyes of the world by a, a complete blockade of information, including, I may say, shamefully, the United Nations um, collected very little information. What little information it did collect, it did not publish to the extent that the 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 normal procedures of diagnosing famine by collecting indicators about malnutrition, mortality, and food supply were not undertaken. Um, even though the United Nations Security Council had, in 2018, passed a, what we, at the time we hoped was a landmark resolution, 2417, on conflict and food security, obliging the UN Secretary General to alert the Council whenever a, a conflict threatened cause food insecurity. The UN Security Council was not alerted. Um, the UN uh, Secretary General Antonio Guterres failed in that obligation. 
um, the, the, the one member state of, of the security, uh, uh, representative of the Security Council, Ireland, that really tried to raise this, didn't get anywhere. It wasn't Guterres' fault, at least not his sole fault. I believe he could have done a lot more. But it was uh, indicative of the way in which a conflict elsewhere in the world was paralyzed. Um, international action to address it was paralyzed by um, what the, the broader context of, of, of rivalry and the specific context of, of, of the conflict over Ukraine. I think, I think there is a moral failing of the UN leadership there, but a, a wider principle of, of the subordination of, of multilateral norms and principles to transactional diplomacy. And Sudan, the country on which I have, 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 have been working now for um, 39 years, um, is an even more egregious example. We are seeing in the last 10 days, two weeks, the emptying of a capital city of some seven to 10 million people um, uh, and the imminent threat of, 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 of mass starvation, not pursued deliberately as a policy by either of the, the two men whom I characterized just recently as, as, as mobsters. This is really a gangland shootout among kleptocrats. Um, but um, with no interest, no, no civilian interest at all. But the implications of, of, of a city, seven to 10 million people who are residents of a city, of course, entirely dependent upon modern infrastructure and imported food, evacuating that city. And a city that, can, that is more than half of the economy of the country. Um, the, the humanitarian consequences are going to be absolutely calamitous. Now, Bennett earlier mentioned divestment over Darfur some 20 years ago. There's a sequel to that, which is, I think, very significant, which is some four years ago when there was a long-awaited democratic transition, this beautiful, exemplary, non-violent uprising by the civilian population led by many women that decorated the walls around the Ministry of Defense with these wonderful murals celebrating freedom, and that the regime of Omar al-Bashir fell, it collapsed. Something that the United States had been wanting since 1990, when this man supported Saddam Hussein's invasion of Iraq and then subsequently invited Osama bin Laden as an honored guest, as well as his other atrocities, such as those in Darfur. Now, one of the features of, of, the, econo of, of the political economy that grew up in this, the, the shadow world of sanctions and divestment was a kleptocratic economy. It was an economy run, as I said, by rival mobsters, military men who controlled the economy. Crony capitalists, illicit activities. General Hemeti, the head of the paramilitary force, the rapid support forces, is a major gold trader, illicit gold trade to Russia and the United Arab Emirates. Russia also has investments on the other side. It's not just a one-sided thing. Um, when, so these men were controlling not only the, the, uh, the guns, but they were controlling the money. And shortly after the, the overthrow of, 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 of the, that kleptocratic military regime, with the, the junior kleptocrats still in charge, my um, old friend, um, senior economist at the United Nations, Abdullah Hamdok, was named to the position of, of, of uh, prime minister, civilian prime minister. And I discussed with him the prospects of what he could do. And in that discussion, we agreed 
that one likely scenario was that he would end up as the, this cashier in a corner grocery, corner grocery store selling you know, soap and matches while the lobsters cut their drug deals in the back room. And that's pretty much what happened. And one of the reasons it happened was, I'm afraid, the Trump administration decided that it would rather deal with the mobsters in the back room. It, just, it had delegated its policy for the whole of the Middle East and, and, and North Africa to its friends and allies. In the Middle East, there was uh, Tijani, um, uh, there was Abdel Fattah al-Sisi, Trump's, and I quote, favorite dictator. There was Benjamin Netanyahu, who decided that, yes, it would be appropriate for the US to lift its sanctions on Sudan, but first, there had to be recognition of Israel. And he dealt directly with the General al-Burhan, the other mobster in charge now. And the other two were Saudi Arabia and the United Arab Emirates. Um, now, all these four countries had one thing in common. They didn't like democracy. And so poor old Abdullah Hamdok was run, hung out to dry. He was given no debt relief, no sanctions relief. And at the end of the day, he was precisely the, the man sort of painting the signs on the, on, on the corner store while, while it was run by the mobsters, who then took over. They launched a coup 18 months ago. Now they're fighting among themselves. And sadly, what we see now is, 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 is a rush by some of those in power I mean, finally, I must say, Secretary uh, uh, Anthony Blinken has woken up to this and is, 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 is doing the right thing. Um, um, but the, 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 there is an enthusiasm for, for, for cutting a deal uh, between the, the warlords. So the Saudis um, are, in my, I mean, they're doing, in the immediate sense, the right thing. But one of the suggestions has been that uh, the former um, director of the World Food Program, David Beasley, be the mediator. Now, David Beasley, um, just uh, some 24th of, of, of February, so just a few months ago, um, I, I can't say wined and dined because they didn't drink alcohol, but he met with these two uh, kleptocrats. He was he and he was given a great an award by them. And his 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 approach to humanitarian diplomacy has been to deal with the power brokers. What we see in Sudan today is actually real humanitarian action, such as it is, is in the hands of those local resistance committees that actually staged the revolution some four years ago. The ones who are keeping, to the extent that the power, the water, uh, the communications, safety of civilians is being kept on, it is by these civilian committees. It is those people with whom uh, we should be working. Um, so we shouldn't give in to the reflex of this transactional politics, but I fear that what we are seeing in this current um, post-invasion of, of Ukraine world is exactly that reflex we must deal. Um, of course, we have to deal with those who have power, but we should not do so in jettisoning, jettisoning our principles. So my concluding remark is that we must be candid about this. If you listen to uh, world leaders speech about global hunger and famine. I can give you the script in two, two, three lines. It starts off by talking about all these factors, about armed conflict and hunger, about the criminality of those who inflict starvation, about poor people not having enough food. But when they get onto action, oh, it is, let us get grain on ships. 
that's the easy part. We need, and, and then when they get to the question of access, it is, let us negotiate humanitarian access with the powers that be, even though we know these people are, 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 are dishonest and, 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 and will um, defraud you. We need to get into that hard task of dealing really with how humanitarian action can work in to, um, and it can only work if it is run on, a, on, a, on an inclusive and consultative and, and essentially democratic principle. And it can only work if we recognize at the highest levels of multilateralism that there has to be a right to food and a right to be protected from the depredation of these starvation criminals. 